The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. You know what I'm going to say. Are you, are you, all right, please stand. If you're able to, for the reading of God's Word this morning, you are getting your workout before you eat all those little hot dog things tonight, some of you, so it's okay. We're glad you're here. Let's read it. It's eight verses this morning, but this is Revelation 15, starting in verse 1. And John, writing again as a vision, you're going to notice in verse 1, he saw. You're going to notice in verse 3 uh, uh, that he saw again, and you're going to notice in verse 5 that he saw or he looked. Uh, excuse me, in verse 2, verse 1, 2, and 5. And that's how we're going to break up this, this study this morning as we go through. But here it as we are in the midst, once again, before the, the, the end of the end, this is a break, and, and this is a vision that he has about what's going to, what's happened, what's going to happen, and what's going to happen again. Confused yet? We'll break it down for you, but let's read it together. Then I saw a sign in heaven, John says, verse 1, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them God is finished with his wrath. And I saw, verse 2, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold, or harps of God rather, in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant, or literally the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. For who, verse 4, will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this, I looked, John says, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness, or tabernacle in heaven, was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And verse 7, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, or perhaps your Bible says vials, and full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God from his power, and no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels was finished. It's a lot of sevens, isn't it? But I appreciate our songs this morning were really just ripped right out of this chapter right here. Maybe songs you didn't know well but songs that communicated what the angels and the saints were singing in heaven. Oh, Lord God, how true are your ways. This morning, I want you to see these singing saints and how they conquer the world once again by God's grace and God's power. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's go before the Lord and let's start our study. Father, thank you. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. give you all the majesty. It's all yours. You are holy, holy, holy. As we take a break, as it were, from seeing the wrath poured out once again, Lord, we join that heavenly chorus to sing, Just and true are your ways, O God of the nations. Father, this side of heaven, we can even question at Christians at times your ways, even though we know that's not how it should be. But in those days, in the time that is being pronounced here, we will know and see as we ought to see, which is through your eyes, as it were. We will see what we now see by faith. It will be clear as day sight for us. So, Father, as we walk by faith here, 
not by sight. Would you give us the vision to see? And Father, if there's any among us that don't know Christ, would this be the day that they, would be the day of their salvation? We pray this and ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, many, many years ago, and uh, it is one of our dear sister's birthday today, and she said she was there when Noah was around. So I, so I imagine you were there for this as well, uh, dear Patsy. But in 1645, during the English Civil War, Generals Fairfax and Cromwell created a new model army. And this wasn't a different army because of rank or anything of that time. It was different because this army was known for one fact that actually intimidated its opponents more than any other thing. They were a singing army. They were armed. They had sabers. They had muskets. They had all the things that soldiers in the 1600s would have, but they were a singing army. Many of them were those old dead guys that we like to quote around here, the Puritans themselves. But on, on top of all this, they marched into battle because they believed that God was on their side. Now, before you say, Darren, is, any army can sing, and we're not here to put a stamp of approval on any war. But the point of it is, is that they looked at Revelation 15, and they said, if this is truly where God wants us to be, then we will sing like they sang in Revelation 15, knowing that God has the victory wherever we go. And they won a lot of wars, and they lost a lot of wars. But friends, I'm here to tell you the distinctive that made them different was their singing. You know, Muslims may chant, Buddhists may chant, Hare Krishnas may chant, but do you know what Christians are known for? They're singing. And today, as we take a time out before the crazy stuff happens in the last seven bowls to the end of the world, I hope this inspires you. Because the songs of heaven are where we see that they have the assurance of victory. It reminds you of Paul in Acts chapter 16, doesn't it? You remember when he was beaten down with Silas and they were thrown in the Philippian jail? What were they doing at midnight? Sleeping like Peter? No. They were singing their hearts out, weren't they? And they were singing songs perhaps like this from Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God who's seated on high? Who looks down from the heavens and on the earth? That is the song that we sing. And there are many people who don't like to sing because they don't like to be heard. But friends, in heaven, it doesn't matter your voice. It doesn't matter you're a tenor, bass, mommy sang bass, daddy sang tenor, whatever it is. The voice that you have is the voice that you will sing with because you know God has got the victory. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And in that day, that's what we're going to be singing about when is the last time someone asked you for the reason you have hope and joy and the reason you can sing in any circumstance? The reason you can hum a tune like Paul in a deep jail somewhere in Asia Minor? And how do we hold ourselves together at the end of time? Well, uh, the big idea of the summary today is simply we need to get ready with gospel hope because God's judgment is near. And I believe it relates back to the songs that we sing and the things that we do. And we'll unpack that a little bit later. But look, there is no more hope that we have that we know that Jesus Christ has won the victory. And it's as if God needed to give John in his vision here in Revelation 15 another dose of that. Because before the last bowls, the last judgments come upon the earth, he needed to remind him that he is sovereignly in control, that the saints have already sung the victory song. You know, there's that old saying, it ain't over till the fat lady sings, whatever in the world that means. The fact of the matter is, is that God has already said, it is finished. The victory cry has already been made. 
But as we come to this last thing, we are going to see that God's shelter remains as well. And through all these things, we get ready with gospel hope because God is worthy to be sung to. And friends, this morning, if you're here and you need a bit of encouragement, I pray this morning that's what we are here to offer. But I want to backtrack for just a second our study of Revelation. John has been writing this book, his visions down, for many, many chapters now. We studied that in verses one or chapter 1. We saw the letters to the seven churches. Starting the first cycle of seven, we started with seven seals and four horsemen back in Revelation 6 and 7. Then we went on to a second cycle of seven with seven trumpets that warned about more of God's judgment. And then we took a break for a, a little bit in chapters 12 through 14 as we saw God preparing the way. And now in chapter 15, we're entering the seventh or the next cycle of sevens, the fourth cycle, where God, as it says there in verse 1, is going to pour out all of his wrath. This is where it gets hard to bear. If you're like me, because I feel it too, studying the book of Revelation is a heavy weight. But I want to remind you what it's all about. God has won. But because God has won, there is hope. He's writing to Christians with no hope. No hope whatsoever. But he gives them that hope with the pictures that we see today. And I want you to see three ways that we can get ready with gospel hope today. Number one is this. We get ready with gospel hope because God's sovereignty reigns. God's sovereignty reigns. And you'll notice there that God's sovereignty reigns. And, and you'll see that as you look at verse 1, who is in control here? Who's in control? It's God himself, absolutely. It is God himself. John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels of seven plagues with the wrath of God, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Look, there is all in God's actions. And it's not like awe, like you go to the dentist. There is like amazement. There is great amazement. John sees another sign in heaven. The other two signs that he saw were those in chapter 12 of the woman and the beast. But these great signs are such that only God could do them. Only a sovereign God could bring them to pass. And what John wants you to see here is he's astonished at what he sees because what he sees is about to change all of history. Everything he knows, everything he's experienced, John looks in amazement. And I want to tell you today, once you lose the awe of God in your life, your heart is quickly not to obey. You want to know when a church loses its awe, the church becomes a country club. You want to know when a denomination loses its awe, is when it becomes infighting and fighting amongst themselves. Do you know and think back in your life, when, was, when were you closest to other Christians? When first you yourself were amazed once again at what God had done for you as a sinner outside of his grace. When were you serving together faithfully with other Christians? When other Christians around you had that same vision. If you're here today, and simply taking the Lord's Supper is just another thing you did because that's what you do, can I ask you to check your heart? Seriously. Because what John sees here, he sees God sovereignly bringing seven plagues, but he says it's a great sign. It's an awestruck sign. But I want you to notice also here with God's sovereignty, there is anger in God's sovereignty or in God's actions. I want to clarify that what I mean by that. The word here is wrath. I'm, I'm alliterating here a little bit, but it's literally the word anger. Not anger like you and I have when we don't get a, a, our way or whatever it is. This is something different. You notice that with this anger comes seven angels and seven plagues. We know the number seven is the term for completeness or perfection. 
And so there is anger in God's actions. You see there with the sovereignty that these plagues will last with them until God is finished. Really what's happening here in verse 1 is that John is preparing you for chapters 16 through 20, the seven bowls. And then in verses 2 through 4, he's going to show you something else. And then at the end of the chapter, he's going to go right back to it. But this is what's coming. Nelson has a very high and mighty task next week. He gets to tell you about seven bowls of wrath. Nelson, I love you and I'm praying for you. And I'm so grateful I'm the boss and can tell you what you have to preach. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm, I'm just giving him a hard time. But he is, and you pray for him because it is a tough chapter. It really is. But you notice here these seven bowls are said to be at the last. Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of time? Is this symbolic? Well, I think what's happening here is, is that this is just simply saying that by Revelation 16, the end is coming near. That's really what we know. The end is coming near. And what we know from this is that there happens to be there, as we look at it, as you see it, that the wrath of God is coming. We know that. We know that truth. But friends, grace is not amazing until you know the wrath of God. You've heard me, many of you here over the years, say that someday we will cheer with God when he sets all the world right, including setting apart those to hell that he set apart forever. You say, how can you do that? Because you, we believe that as you see God, you will see a different view of what God is going to do. The wrath of God is not a popular topic. It's not going to win friends and influence people. It's going to turn people off. So what have a lot of churches done? They just stopped talking about it. Talk about the love of God. Talk about the grace of God. Talk about the mercy of God. That's wonderful. But if you don't have the wrath of God, you don't have a gospel of God. You have to have both. And if you have lost your amazement with the amazing grace of God, you need to remind yourself about the wrath of God that's coming. It's coming because we've offended a holy God. And we deserve that hell. We should be in that hell, but he came to save us. If that doesn't stir your soul, I can give you nothing up here. We can have dramas, we can have plays, we can have fog machines, we can get pounding the pulpit. But if you do not have the wrath of God in your soul and know how amazing it is, then you've lost the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why should you praise God? If you have your bulletin, this is not up on the screen. You should praise God for his wrath because you have a super high view of God. If you don't have a super high view of God, nothing about Revelation is going to make any sense. Is your God that big? Is your God that holy? Is your God that so far removed from everything else that he himself is the only one who can come and set it all right? Do you know when we lose that vision? When we start thinking we're something. When we start tower of babbling ourselves to say, eh, we're really not that bad. Eh, God isn't really that holy. Friends, my prayer for this church is that we would be so humbled every time we think about the cross of Jesus Christ that God gets much higher and much higher and much higher and much higher. I don't want to preach a low gospel. I want to preach a high gospel. We've lowered the bar so much in our churches today that we can't even tell the difference between Christians and people who come to church just because that's what they've done all their lives. Hell is air-conditioned. It's not talked about. But God's wrath here is a hope that we cling to. And I'm getting fired up, and I know that. And the game hasn't even started, right? But seriously, the bottom line is this. 
if you have lost your amazement with what God has done for you, I would encourage you to study the wrath of God and consider what God had to do to rid the world of sinners such as us. And then make a beeline to that cross and remind yourself that God so loved the world that he died and gave his life for you. He is a sovereign God. And that's why these people are gonna get ready to sing. That's why they have gospel hope in the midst of these judgments. That's number one. Number two is this, God's saints recite. God's saints recite. This is the second vision of the chapter. It's gonna be comparing to Exodus. You're gonna see a lot of, uh, of, of Exodus coming through. And we've said this before, but Revelation is really just an Old Testament, uh, a New Testament book with an Old Testament flair. But look at verse two. He says, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. I want to give you four reasons we praise God for his wrath. You ready for these? Verse two, the first reason you pray and you should give praise to God in every age is this, for his judgment and his justice found in verse two. Why do you praise God for his judgment and his justice? You see that word sea there? Some have said this is like the Red Sea. Others have said this is like the heavenly throne of Revelation 4, the sea of glass that was there in Revelation 4, 6. Others have said this is a symbol of the chaotic powers of the dragon. There's a lot of thoughts on this, but I think all of us agree that the sea here probably is a reference to God's holiness and his purity and his separation from creation. There's a difference there. There's a barrier there. Then you notice that the sea of glass was mingled with fire. That's a weird image, isn't it? This mingled with fire is probably the, the divine judgment that is coming. But you notice that, that God is getting ready to pour out his wrath, but there seems to be a separation there, his holiness and this fire. And guess who's standing right there? The saints, those who had conquered the beast and its image and its number of its name, that 666, standing beside the sea of glass. And what are they doing? They're playing with harps. We looked at that last week in chapter 14, that they were playing harps and doing that sort of thing as they were uh, coming. The judgments were coming. What is happening here is that because of their faith in Christ, they have defeated the enemy. They had no standing on earth, but they're standing in heaven. They had no support on earth, but they have the greatest support in heaven. And here what is happening is, is a reminder that nothing you risk in sacrifice for God is ever wasted. It's worth it. Give your life to Christ because we de he deserves our praise for his judgment and his justice. He is bringing it to bear. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus said, many will leave and forsake mother and brother for my sake. And at that time, I will give them a hundred times as much as they lost. You want to know what's worth it? Following Jesus Christ, even when it's difficult, is worth it. That may not make a lot of sense to the world, but they stand on the sea of glass with harps, joy of celebration of God in hand because of what he has done for us. Second reason you can praise God as they did is because you can praise God for his deeds and directions in verse three, his deeds and directions. Verse three says, and they sing with the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. In Exodus, Moses is likely referenced here in Exodus 15. You can write that down or look it up later. But Moses sang at, at, at the Red Sea about how God crushed the Egyptians. And not only did he praise them for physical slavery there, but here there's a greater song. 
The spiritual slavery that held these saints back in heaven is now gone. And so they are praising him for what he's done. And notice how they say that at verse 2. It says, great and amazing are your deeds. Great and amazing are your deeds. This word literally here refers to the fact that only God could have done this. If you can look at your salvation and say, I did that, you probably aren't saved. But if you can look at your salvation and say, only God could do that, that's a great evidence that you know the God of the salvation you proclaim to say. The phrase here, oh, oh, and he goes on to say, oh, Lord God, the Almighty. We don't sing that a lot these days. That phrase appears in Zechariah and Malachi. And better, he goes on to say, just and true are your ways. God, you can never do anything wrong. God, everything you do is perfect. Everything you do in my life, Lord, is great. That's why God's power solves all problems and prayers. God's power solves all problems and prayers. As you look around your life and you look around this world, and sometimes we just struggle to understand why God allows certain events, the suffering of the righteous, the prosperity of the wicked, and we can trust here that his judgments are fair and true. I was joking with our sister over here that she was born, Patsy, if I can do, do say so, I'm picking on you today. You were born, five, you were five years old when World War II started. You were about 11 when it ended. That's amazing, by the way, by God's grace. But I know many of that generation, as you hear old interviews, say, I don't know where God was in the midst of all that or, or some terrible episodes in human history. And friends, this side of heaven, we may never have all those answers, but one thing we do know is that exactly what they say. We can worship God and praise him for what he does, even when you don't understand it, because he is just and true. How many people who sit on benches in our judicial system, can you look at them and say, you are just and you are true? Because it seems like report after report after report is, Oh, yeah, they were in cahoots with this people who lined their pocket there, and uh, they were friends with these people over there. And look, the only person who can ever say he's just and true is God. And if he's able to lead the universe, he can lead your life. He can guide you. He can direct you. And he can make sure you get home to glory, safe and sound. Amen? That's why they praise him for his wrath and his justice. Number three, they also praise him not only for his deeds and direction, his justice and, and all those things. They also praise him, in, uh, start of verse 4, for his name and his nature. His name and his nature. And notice there it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. You alone are holy. I remember when I started out and as a youth pastor, minister of youth, pastor of youth, whatever they call it, pastor of students these days, I remember doing an illustration in what we called the youth house of the time. Uh, and I took all the kids into the bathroom that hadn't been updated probably since 1962 at that point. One of, you know, the, if you were out that, it just looked like that bathroom. It looked like grandma's bathroom. That's fine. It was clean. But I took a glass of water and I took a dropper out of the toilet that was flushed and I cleaned it and I dropped it in to that water glass of water. And I looked at one of the youth and said, which is closer to God? The bacteria that's here or the angels that are, or excuse me, which is more like God? The bacteria that's here 
or this water that has the nasty stuff, which is closer to God or more like God? And they said, the angels are more like God. God is God. There's none like him. He is completely separate, completely holy. You could have the cleanest water, and guess what? We mess it up by our sin. We're not like him. You could have angels who are around the, the cleanest parts of the bowl, so to speak, and, and fly around him, but even some of them were not. God is God and God alone. I didn't do that illustration justice, forgive me. But the point of it is, there is none like God anywhere. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is no one in this whole world, no one who is close to him, and that's why we are to fear him? Friends, there is no middle ground. You either love him or you hate him. There is either fear for God or hate for him. And here the saints say, who will not fear God? God is to be glorified because he's great. He's marvelous. He's just. He's true. He's holy. He's the almighty. He's the king. And his name and his nature are truly worthy to be praised. There is no one like him on heaven and on earth. Not that podcast preacher, not the preacher on TV, not our pastors here, not our church, not our denomination, not the Pope, not the bishops, not anybody. It is God and God alone. That is it. And he tells them here, look, you need to worship him. Why? Because he is holy. He is holy. Holy, 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 Isaiah 6 says he is. And friends, what happens when that happens, when you acknowledge him as holy? It says in Psalm 86, you alone are holy and all the nations will worship you for your righteous acts. Why can you worship God? Because he's got it all under control, but there's none like him. And because there's none like him, he's trustable. Church, I would just submit to you that a lot of times the problems in our lives come when we try to take over that holiness in our own lives. We try to play God instead of allowing God to be himself. Do you fear him? Do you worship him? Do you honor him? Because he alone is worthy of those things. Last reason we praise him and the reason they're singing in verse four is because he has importance and he has insight. Notice what it says at the end of verse four. All the nations will come. All the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Friends, what this is saying is not all, not some of the nations shall come. All will come and ascribe worship to him. He alone is worthy. He alone is righteous. He alone is the one to receive praise. And as it comes, he says that the righteous acts have been revealed. No one on judgment day will be without excuse. Everyone will stand before God and have absolute accountability. Christian, you are only responsible for the truth that you have. But what truth do you have? You have a lot of it here. We will stand and give glory to him. You see in your bulletin, I'm not going to go over every one of these. I put these for further study. Uh, a pastor put these out based upon what we have sung. Ten reasons why we should worship God differently because of Revelation 15. We should love our church singing. We should glorify God. We should embrace songs, new and old, that talk about the historical death of the church. We should rediscover the Psalms in worship because they speak of these things. We should seek as they do to have excellence in worship. We should sing loudly with the voice of a congregation because that's what we're going to be doing. Number seven, there you see, 
Number eight, we should introduce perhaps even diverse styles of worship because God is not just a PowerPoint presentation worship in heaven. Praise the Lord. We should sing along with different expressions that talk about musical depth. Maybe that's through instruments. Maybe it's not. But in all this, we uphold the biblical truth of songs. You know, there are some songs out there that make Jesus seem more like a boyfriend in some sappy romance novel that Harlequin put out than he is the almighty God who is the one that we praise for these four facets. I'm grateful of this church that our worship team does not take that lightly. That when we come to worship, we're not here to honor us. We are here to honor him. And what we can learn from these saints is that as we worship together, that lyrics matter, our voices matter, our congregation singing matters. It comes together. You will know a church by how well it sings. Not musically, praise the Lord for that, amen? But theologically what we say. Friends, there are some songs that, look, can I just take an aside note here? And I put this in my notes as a side note. I put a red flag by it because I know it's dangerous territory. But you ready? I love K-Love and 88.5 and all those things. But I guarantee you some of those songs, if you compared them to what Revelation 15 says, would fail at every single point. Be careful what you listen to. Because there was a study done back in 2008 by a brother who spent all day, 24 straight hours, recording the lyrics of songs on modern radio. And he found that over 85% of those lyrics were focused on us, and less than 15% were focused on him. Be careful what you are listening to and singing. I hope that's not stepping on your toes. This is not an anti-88.5 K-Love thing. I'm just telling you. The songs we sing matter because the one to whom we sing them to matter. And how we express that matters. Say, Darren, is that a hymn or an old song? You're missing the point. What is that song singing? You know, there are some songs on the radios from churches in California, from Australia, and other places around the world whose teachers teach that God may not be the only true Savior. Do you want me to list them for you? Bethel, Hillsong, and others. Be careful what you consume. Because the moment you think that just because it's on the radio, it's biblical, is the moment you miss the victory song that God says. If what you're listening to does not uplift God and God alone first, it might not be something worth listening to. That's country songs, that's gospel songs, that's CCM songs, that's hymns. Is it more about him or is it more about us? Be very, very careful. Last thing I'll say is this, number three. God's sovereignty reigns, his saints recite, but now his shelter remains. Look at verse five. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent, and witness was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls or vials full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. God's shelter remains. I want you to see first off that we must be ready to serve him. We must be ready to serve him. 
after these things. This is looking forward to what Nelson's going to present next week, the seven bowls of God's wrath, the visions of the victors, the temple here, or your Bible may say the holy of holies, of the tabernacle, the testimony. This goes back to uh, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And in that tabernacle were the, the Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where God dwells. Well, now you're seeing that in heavenly form. And in verse 5, he looked and it was opened. It was open to see. It was open to see what's happening in God's throne room. And in that temple appeared seven angels, and they administered the seven plagues. And you notice how they are clothed, didn't you? That white linen, it's the purity of the angels and the righteous character of God. They have a golden girdle. I love that word, girdle, golden girdle, golden sash. It's symbolic of God's riches and beauty. It's the same one that Christ wore in Revelation 1.13. But what are they coming to do? They're coming to seal the deal. They're coming to right all wrongs. They're coming to do what God has told them to do. And friends, as we come, they come to serve him. And what this reminds us of is that time to serve Christ is short. Use every moment well. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 3, some scoffers said to Peter, where's the promise of your Lord's coming? You ask most people today, when's Jesus coming? Ah, that's just, they talk about that. They, they kind of dangle that in front of you just to keep you going back to church. Jesus is, no, Jesus said he's coming. He's going to come again. Amen? And what he tells them here is, is that after I looked, I saw these things. What did he see? The four living creatures, verse 7, were pouring out the wrath of God. These angels came to serve. They were ready at the call. They were coming to do it. And they gave the the vials and the bowls up. Why? He tells you why. Because God is everlasting and everlasting. I've mentioned this book way too many times. We mentioned it in Sunday school and Facebook. Many of you this week got that book in the mail called The Great Controversy. Uh, It looked like a political book. How many many of y'all got that just out of curiosity? A lot of people got it. Our friends who wrote that book, Seventh-day Adventist, are a mixed bag, and some can be considered believers by the Word of God as a testimony, but, but most of those who sent that book out believe that Ellen G. White, the founder, one of the main founders of Seventh-day Adventism, wrote the book, The Great Controversy. She believes that God did not start saving people until 1844. And guess what? That's in chapter 29 of that book. I know you all got read through that book, just like like this, right? As soon as you got it. But friends, I want you to know that heaven was opened here. And heaven was opened to all those who claimed the name of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't waiting on Mrs. White to say in a vision that she supposedly had in 1844. Aren't you grateful that the word of God is clear and straightforward for you? Be ready to serve Christ, but be aware you may get things in your mail that look good, smell good, because they have a White House on it and it's a political season. They want to get you into their cult. Don't believe it. Go back to the scriptures. Heaven was opened up, not so that your sins could be forgiven. Heaven did open up. Jesus came and did that once and for all. It's finished. It's done. Heaven was opened up to pour out the wrath of God on these false teachers and their false ways. You have friends who are Seventh-day Adventists. I want to be very clear with this. It is about as hit and miss as you can come. Their 27 factual statements actually teach that you have to be as righteous 
You have to be a very good person to get to heaven, to put it in simple terms. How are you saved? You are saved by who and who alone? It's Christ. But you need to be ready at a moment's notice to serve him because the end of time is coming. Lastly, we'll close with this. We must serve him even if we are restrained from doing so. Even if we're restrained, we must serve him. Notice verse 8. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Smoke is a common theme in the Bible representing God's glory. Some think here it's God's judgment. Others think here it's uh, speaking back to Mount Sinai. It could be any of those. In Genesis 15 this morning, Abraham passed through smoking furnace uh, uh, with God as he was setting the covenant on Mount Sinai. Smoke came from the mountain. There, when the temple opened up, the Shekinah glory of God came out in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. But what's the point? The point of all of it is, is that God is not holding back any longer. God is going to, when his judgment comes, bring forth everything on this earth. And God is not limited to using only Christians for his plans. God is not limited to using only Christians for his plans. The seven angels are going to bring about judgment, but God is using that false prophet, the Antichrist, and all those of Revelation 13 to carry that out as well. God used Pharaoh. God used Pilate. God used Gamaliel. God used Judas. God used Cyrus. God used Babylon and Persia and all these nations to carry out his will, and we didn't even know it. Our God reigns, even using evil people to fulfill his purposes of judgment on the earth. Say, Darren, this is a heavy, heavy message. It is. I feel it. You feel it. Amy, if you could put up the title slide again, where we are at What is this whole series about? God wins. Friends, if you can take nothing else away from today, God sovereignly reigns. His saints are singing his victory praise because the victory's already been won. And his shelter remains secure because he alone rules heaven. What an awesome God we serve. I have no idea what's gonna happen. And really, at my bone of bones, apart from a passing moment, Eh, it's a game, whatever. If the Chiefs win or lose, if schools are canceled or not on Wednesday, if our city's in an uproar or not in an uproar, I don't know. What I do know is, is that our mission remains the same. Jesus is king. Who are we telling about him? Who are we loving for his purposes? That's really what it's all about. Will you pray with me? Let's go before the Lord today. Father, we thank you. The world, or at least the American world, starts to focus in on a city in a desert out in Nevada in the coming hours as we await word from human figures here doing this and human figures here doing that. Father, we thank you that we can enjoy all things to your glory. But Father, we also thank you for these pictures from Revelation, which certainly remind us about the perspective in the midst of all these things, that, Lord, you are coming again that we are aliens in this world. We are simply passing through. We are, we are resident aliens. We are sojourners. We have no home here. 
But Lord, as we uh, mingle with people in these days ahead, whether it's tonight or through the week and whatever we are, whatever we are doing, that you would put, as Solomon said, eternity in our hearts, that these terrible pictures that we see would just weigh us down, Lord, with the thought that everyone around us, whether it's family, kids, grandkids, spouses, need Jesus Christ. And Father, we are grateful that we know the victory's been won, but Lord, would you just impress upon our heart the greater need to see people not just as good people or nice people, but as lost or saved, as unrighteous or righteous, as regenerate or ungenerate, as in Christ or out of Christ, in Adam or in Christ. Father, break our hearts. This is such a heavy book, but Lord, it points to you because you alone are worthy of the praise. So, Father, receive it today. Thank you for our dear church. If there's ever a time we preach to the choir, perhaps it's one of those days. We know these truths, Lord, so well. But, Father, we pray that what we hear today would not just fall upon deaf ears. In my own heart first and all of us here, take it by your spirit and lead us this week. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask all this today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen.